0: Hi, and welcome back to the Offspring Magazine, the podcast. I'm your host, Marcel, and today I'll be speaking to Lindsay Edjo, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania in the US. We'll first dive into PhD life in the US and her research in the field of pain neurobiology. And then we'll focus on Lindsay's big passion besides conducting science, namely communicating science. Densei is really a great science communicator, so stay tuned to learn what she's got to say on this topic. I hope you'll enjoy this. Welcome everyone. I'm yeah today very happy to introduce a special guest, Lindsay Ejo, who's a PhD candidate in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania. And we'll be speaking about PhD life, especially also a bit the comparison between the US and Germany and science communication. And I personally always like to unpack our guests' trajectory a bit. Um, What were the things that eventually led them to the place where they are right now? So, um, yeah, let's unpack yours a bit first. And um, maybe you can first introduce yourself and then start by saying where you grew up and what got you interested in science in the first place.
1: Awesome. I'm glad. Thank you so much for having me. Um, My name is Lindsay Ejo. I am a third-year PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania, And what got me into science? I mean, like, (laughs) I've always been very curious, even from childhood. I've always thought neuroscience was super interesting. It's like a big black box full of unanswered questions. And there's always more to learn. And that (laughs) feeds my inner curiosity a lot. So, Um, yeah, that's why I decided to pursue neuroscience as a PhD in a career path.
0: Okay, cool. So it wasn't that you were like, starting your studies without knowing where you wanted to go but you wanted to do neuroscience from the get-go?
1: Actually no so I kind of knew I liked biology in general but didn't Mm -hmm. know what specifically I wanted to do and I came into college into university um, pre-med so after a year that ended quickly (laughs) because I realized I didn't really much like the hospital clinical setting but Um, After taking introduction to psychology and a couple of neuroscience classes, I decided that like that was the most interesting stuff that I was encountering every day in school and decided to pursue that and then research in that field as well, rather than like the clinical side of it.
0: Yeah, I think that's the first big difference between the US and Germany, because in Germany, we don't have something like pre-med. We just have a medical degree. So after school, you enroll in the medical degree and that's it i think it's much nicer in the u.s that you actually have the chance to switch like fields a bit after actually getting to know the everyday life of a medical student or pre-medical student in that case so that's cool. yeah that,
1: that was pretty valuable um i ended up doing a neuroscience major at my university which um encompasses most like if not all of the classes one would need <laughs> to apply mm-hmm. to medical school in the U.S. so I like to say that I was like a fake pre-med <laughs> I was still <laughs> studying with all of them but my, my career path is different
0: so but then when you decided not to pursue medicine um, did you have this goal of doing a PhD from the beginning on or when did this goal or this ambition emerge
1: so when I was in the high school my senior year of high school I participated in like a science and technology program, and part of that was having a research project that you would either do by yourself with a mentor or through an internship at a nearby like research institution, and I ended up doing an internship at the National Institute of Health, which I joined an intramural lab and helped a researcher work on a project involving the medial amygdala and aggression. And I had like a very like low tier role in the lab, but I remember feeling like this is so cool and also so important. And I knew that the path to doing something that my boss would do would be to get a PhD. So then I came into college kind of with like the back of my mind that I thought PhD was cool, but I still wanted to be pre-med. And then after being exposed to more and more PhDs, my faculty and other graduate students at my school, University of Pittsburgh, that's when I was like decided to go on the PhD side and begin to do different summer internships and things like that, that would expose me more to what the PhD life was like, which, even though it is grueling, <laughs> was a lot more attractive to me then, than um, medical school. Yeah.
0: Cool. Super cool that you had this opportunity. Um, but how did you end up having this opportunity? Because I think it's rare that high schoolers uh, can actually go to such a cool research institution like the NA. NIH and like help in the lab that's super cool
1: yeah it was like I would say like stroke of luck um my so I had a guidance counselor through the science and technology program that helped me simply email cold email a bunch of different researchers at the NIH and ask does anybody want any high schoolers to do like pretty much volunteer work and through the, the science and tech program and Luckily, one of them emailed me back (laughs) and decided to take me on for like more of a analysis role. I was mostly doing behavior analysis, watching behavior videos, coding behavior, et cetera. So, yeah, it's definitely very rare, but I was in a magnet school that had these kinds of programs and um, the county I live in or I grew up in decided to invest in these kinds of programs to like kind of make their high schoolers more attractive.
0: Cool. Um, Okay, so then after doing your bachelor's with a neuroscience major, you had to apply for PhDs, right? And I think that's another very striking difference between the German and US system. Because I feel like in the US, maybe just in recent years, but I have the impression that applying for a PhD in the US has turned into a full-time job (laughs) in some sense um yeah so it would be cool if you could walk us through the application phase and um, what it takes to apply for a phd in the u.s how many places you apply to and these kinds of things
1: okay i'm happy to so i applied for my phd actually at the end of my senior year or in the beginning of my senior year of college so so
0: that's the last year in college yeah Yes, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: sorry. My final year, I um started off by taking a standardized test called the GRE. I'm not sure what GRE stands for, but um <laughs> I took the GRE. I ended up not doing too well, but it ended up being okay because the GRE is being phased out of a lot of graduate programs right now. So I ended up being able to apply to six programs that didn't even require GRE. Thankfully, because <laughs> I I was stuck between like waiting another year and retaking the GRE and pay, uh, or just going for it without the GRE score. And I decided I didn't want to retake it because I was focused on my final year. And also it was it's like 200 US dollars to take. And I just couldn't afford that at the moment. But um, yeah, so I applied. I reached out to my research mentors. So throughout college and like I mentioned high school, I joined and partook in a uh Three or sorry, four or five different research projects, um, all no- about psychology or neuroscience or biology, and I was able to ask three of my research mentors from those experiences for recommendation letters, and um, I would say that for U.S. PhD program, at least in neuroscience, the most important factors I'd say are your research experience, and your um, your recommendation letters. So, secure those. Another thing that was important was writing my personal statements and my research statements. Um, So I did that over the course of that fall. Then after that, sent in my applications, received invitations to interview in person um, around January. And then I visited the schools about, I got, I applied for six programs and I visited three to interview was invited to interview and after that i was in i was accepted into two and waitlisted for one and then i just picked the university of pennsylvania at the end
0: cool great Um, but then you were kind of lucky to um, have the opportunity to pursue phd directly after your bachelor's, right i I hear about many people that lack um, maybe the um, required research experience and therefore have to do like a post back phase one or two years before they actually get into um, a PhD program.
1: Yeah, I'd say that I'd say that I was fortunate to attend the University of Pittsburgh, which is an R one major research institution. And therefore we I had like a lot of opportunities to do research on campus. And was able to do summer research as well. So I ended up racking up enough hours and experience that I became competitive. But a lot of times that's not um, a reality for many students that go to small universities, liberal arts schools, come from community college, just have less time to kind of build that research resume. But I will say that it's not rare to start your PhD directly after undergrad. My cohort um, that we joined in 2020 is like 22 people. And I'd say 10 of us came straight from undergrad and the rest did gap years, either as a research technician in labs or through formal post programs. So it's not rare, but I did. I would say it is challenging. <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: I see, yeah. Um, what would you say, how common is it to do a master's before your PhD? And if your goal is a PhD, would you rather do a post and to get maybe publication or a master's? Because in Europe, The master's is the rule, not the exception.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah, I was advised to not pursue a master's because master's programs are, well, education in the U.S. is very expensive in general, but master's programs are, like, very, very quite expensive. And um, I was lucky enough to have a full tuition scholarship for undergrad, so I didn't want to take out loans to do gap years. So I would definitely say that doing a master's before a PhD is quite rare. I would say there's only, like, three or four people in my entire PhD program for neuroscience that did master's before starting. Um, I would say it's more like most people start or uh, go through post back research programs to get this research experience and the publications necessary. But doing a master's doesn't put you at a disadvantage. I would just say it's like um, monetary disadvantage. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I see. Okay. And if you had the power to change something about the system, like, the whole application procedure and how this works, um, what would you do?
1: I would make the process, I would do two things. I would make the process more holistic. So um, a lot of people, like I mentioned, do not have the research experiences that is necessary to maybe like get into these programs. So two things, um, one is to you know look at an applicant more holistically instead of just looking at research experience, look at their demonstrated interest. Maybe they did labs outside of traditional research or they did like things that don't necessarily count. Maybe giving more weight to those, but also just providing opportunities for undergraduates to pursue research in the first place. Um, uh, it would be good to have pipeline programs for students that are in community colleges or larger school or sorry, smaller schools to be able to get the experience they want. I would also abolish the GRE because (laughs) the GRE, the standardized test that we take is not necessarily related to what we'll be studying in in our PhD. And it's also been proven to be a poor predictor of graduate student success. So it's also like a racist and classist (laughs) standardized test form. So it becomes moot in my opinion to require students to take a standardized test just for the fun of it, rather than looking at their passion for science and what they can bring to the table in that way. Mm -hmm.
0: And why do you think it's racist and classist?
1: Well, I say that because it is, um, shown that minority students that take the GRE historically do worse because of these underlying effects in the United States society where minorities are less exposed to mentorship, study resources, um, a lot of things when it comes to having the money, a lot of like, for example, I paid a lot of money to prep for the GRE, prep books, tutoring, things like that. It's kind of like a test that you learn how to take the test rather than just taking the test. And it costs to learn how to take the test. So it's it's classist in that way.
0: I see. Yeah, I can imagine it's super difficult because um, people of lower socioeconomic status are punished, like twice in the system like once because they don't potentially don't have the opportunity to have as much research experience maybe because they have to work while studying or because they are at a college where like research just isn't the focus and then on top of that the GRE
1: yeah and then I mean it it the problems persist you know the uh, many of the things that you pay for as a graduate student are reimbursable for example, conferences, conference attendance, and um, like you mentioned, attending research experience, like doing these research experiences, like the one I did at the NIH, was uh, completely unpaid. <laughs> so if I needed to have a job to, you know, sustain myself, I wouldn't be able to conduct that position. So it, it, it becomes tricky for people who, like you said, are doubly punished.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. like that's super interesting because in Germany it's like completely different so people in Germany will always also complain but we have almost no like tuitions it's like like 300 euros um, per semester and it includes the train ticket (laughs) basically so like from a German perspective hearing this always sounds a bit (laughs) ridiculous in a sense oh Um, my gosh
1: meanwhile my undergraduate um, tuition was 28,000 K tuition only per year.
0: That's ridiculous. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's why I actually wouldn't have been able to attend my institution if not for that scholarship.
0: I see. But how do people handle this that do not have a scholarship and don't have rich parents? (laughs) So how do people usually do that?
1: Um, yeah, they take out student loans it becomes very detrimental because you end up paying these loans off for the rest of your life. I mean, that's it. That being said, if you don't do postgraduate studies, like a master's or anything else like medical school that costs even more money, but yeah, most people just take student loans and pay them off slowly and just deal with it for that education.
0: Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, how does this then change during the PhD during the PhD you're paid, right?
1: Yes, yeah, so for, I would say for biomedical science PhDs in the US, those are guaranteed to be paid. Um, you either might have some sort of teaching assistantship or research assistantship where you TA for specific classes or even teach courses for undergraduates or graduate students. And that's like your payment. Um, other programs that have more funding don't necessarily require you to TA for that long. Um, and they just guarantee you funding in general. And the money will usually come from the institution for the like for in my case, my first two years were paid by the institution through like undergraduate students tuition funds. And then the rest of my PhD is being covered by my lab. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And then I think in the US, there's also a difference, like a, an official difference between being a PhD student and a PhD candidate, because... I guess you have to do some coursework before and have to pass a test. Could you maybe elaborate on that a bit? Because in Germany, we don't really have that, I think because we have our master's degrees and then doing a PhD, you're basically, technically, we don't even know the difference between PhD student and candidate. We're just PhD candidates from the get-go.
1: I see. Yeah, so we have something that's equivalent to a master's, except you don't actually get a master's, called the <laughs> candidacy exam um two schools or different programs do it differently right so some programs have you take a written exam and then also do a research proposal and defend that my program only requires a research proposal so i wrote a proposal for my thesis project and defended that in front of a committee at the end of my second year and then the committee liked it (laughs) i was able to answer their questions and they i was from then progressed to candidacy so at that point i had taken all of the classes I need for my PhD, as well as done my candidacy exam. And then at that point you're ABD, which means all blood dissertation. All I have to do next is just, you know, do my experiments and propose.
0: <laughs> just which could these. take,
1: <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, which could take years too, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, great. Um, yeah, then let's dive into your PhD work a bit. Uh, what is your research actually about?
1: Yeah, so I study neural circuit mechanisms of pain and pain relief. My lab is generally interested in how the brain represents the experience of pain and how that's encoded in different specific neural circuits. We're really interested in opioid sensitive circuits in the brain, which are involved in pain and pain relief. My specific project is looking at a natural form of pain relief called placebo analgesia. So there are two ways that you can induce your own pain relief. One is through stress and adrenaline, and two is through like expectations, placebo effect. So the placebo will actually cause a release of natural opioids in your body to relieve your pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my project seeks to understand the neurobiological mechanisms of placebo pain relief, so that we can look work towards building safer non-opioid therapies for chronic pain.
0: Cool. Like that's super relevant and also. Um has a clear application, like medical application. But uh, you're studying this in mice, right?
1: Yes, I do study mice.
0: Okay, so then maybe it's a naive question, but how do you study placebo effects in mice in this context?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, right? How How do you assess a mouse's expectations? How do you make them expect something as specific as pain relief? This can be done in different ways. Historically, it's been done by training using Pavlovian conditioning, right? To train mice to expect pain relief in certain contexts. So a lot of people will put a mouse that is in pain in a context like a black box that has a, um, where they'll get, okay, so people will, for example, give that mouse that's in pain a morphine drug to relieve its pain and make them associate that pain relief with that specific context, that black box. Meanwhile, they train the mouse to expect pain in a different context, maybe a black box with white stripes, or something like that, right? After that, the animal will learn that that context is associated with pain and the other one is associated with pain relief. Afterwards, you can give the mouse saline. Don't don't give it any drug at all. Put it in the context that expects pain relief. And even though it's not receiving any pain relieving drugs, it will display less pain behaviors. So what do these pain behaviors look like? It depends on the kind of pain it's in. An animal that, for example, is sitting on a hot plate um will lick their paws will guard them will make moves to escape and different things like that that we can assess and quantify and compare between animals who were taught when trained to expect pain relief and those who were not
0: okay so um you're basically saying that the pain relief will be linked or pain and pain relief will be linked to different environments yes and then um this association can then be used to study, for instance, the neural mechanisms of placebo pain relief. Um, Yes. Can you maybe walk us through, like, your experimental setup? So um, how exactly will you do this and what will be the readout in the end? So which brain regions will you look at and how will you do that?
1: Yes, so my project is looking at actually a novel model of placebo analgesia that is interesting and exciting because it's drug-free. So in this case, we have, like I mentioned before, two different environmental contexts that are right next to each other that the animal can run freely between. And in this case, the context on the right side, so it's a two-chamber apparatus, right? So the context on the right chamber is underlied by a hot plate and the context on the left chamber is underled by a like regular room temperature or body temperature plate and the animals are placed in the hot plate are able to run to the like cooler safe side and form this association that when they perform this action and move to the other side of the chamber or to the other side of the paradigm they experience pain relief from the right side that was hot after this training we put the animals back in the chambers where actually this time both chambers are hot. So the animal will run from the hot side to the supposed cool side, which is now hot. But we find that after learning, the animals are performing less pain behaviors in the safe associated side, despite the fact that they're still sitting on a very hot plate.
0: That's so cool.
1: It's absolutely amazing. And it was like... A, Oh, also, when we first saw the animals like run over, they're just sitting there. They still perform like reflexive pain behaviors, like you know, how you touch a hot stove and you pull your hand back. Like, they still perform things like that, but they don't seem to pay attention to their pain. They don't lick, they don't seem to want to escape, and they actually stay on that side for a longer period of time than uh, non conditioned controls. So, then the readout for this is like I mentioned, the pain behaviors that we mentioned before licking, guarding, escape behaviors, and then also we read out with a, um, just look at different brain regions and their activity. So I'm specifically interested in the thalamus, which it seems to be a kind of sensory gate for information traveling to the cortex. And I'm interested in how opioid neurons, opioid sensitive neurons in the thalamus behave in the context of pain and then in the context also of this placebo induced pain relief.
0: How do you access those neurons? So how do you record from them?
1: So my project, uh, which I just submitted a grant for this past weekend, <laughs> is Congrats. to, yeah. thank you, it was a lot of work, I'm very proud, <laughs> but um, my goal is to perform fiber photometry or calcium imaging in these neurons. So what that means is where we inject a virus directly into that brain region through the skull that will cause the neurons, the opioid sensitive neurons, in that region to express something called GCAMP, which is an indication of neuronal activity. So when a neuron fires, the neuron inputs or inputs a lot of calcium, and that calcium leads to a fluorescence that we can measure. So pretty much we're able to measure population activity of these neurons in the thalamus in real time as the animal is awake and behaving awake and behaving
0: okay so simply put you're able to have a sensor for activity in this specific population of neurons and will then be able to while the animal is behaving and experiencing pain or pain relief um, track this activity in the end
1: yes we do plan to extend this past the thalamus to other parts of the brain that are known to participate in pain and pain relief as well.
0: I, as a molecular neuroscientist, I'm always astonished by, yeah, these incredibly smart behavioral paradigms to study this. So this is super cool that you, um, I mean, I guess you build on other behavioral paradigms, but did you or your group come up with this specific paradigm on your own? Or um, did you take, a paradigm that was used in a different context and just applied it there.
1: Yeah. So we had read about other contexts that one used things like morphine drugs or two used like these hands-free experimental paradigms. And then we used those to kind of create this new paradigm where not only is it drug-free hands-off, it's also kind of incorporates this operate condition model operate conditioning model where animals are able to perform an instrumental action to get their pain relief rather than be put in a chamber where they expect pain relief, if that makes sense. So yeah, we built on previous models that we saw at different conferences and papers to kind of optimize our paradigm.
0: Okay, cool. And I think it will also be interesting to, um, understand why it's particularly handy to use mice for this kind of research.
1: Yeah. Um, So it's a big question, right? Why do we need to study pain relief and placebo in mice? Um, Humans can have the placebo effect as well. I would say that um, one major, major advantage of studying this process in mice is the specificity to which we can study, like how how far we can zoom into the circuit, you know, if that makes sense, right? Because the process of studying or injecting a sensor into this brain region to study the activity in the area is is very invasive and it would certainly be poor for someone's so a human's life expectancy right (laughs) um to do this (laughs) so i don't think it'll be happening anytime soon in our lifetime right but we can't we have over time built up the technology to genetically engineer mice to be able to really really specifically study specific cell types in the brain that are involved in the behaviors that we're interested in. And not only types that maybe express a certain protein or something that might be involved in a behavior, but also you could even go as far as to capture all of the neurons that were excited in the brain in the context of a specific behavior and then capture a functional ensemble. So if you give an animal a painful stimulus like hot water to their paw, you can use something like the the trap method to Express a specific actuator in cells that were active in the process of pain. Gain genetic access to those cells and begin to manipulate those cells' activity too. So that'll help us ex, ex, um, understand the different populations that are involved in pain, control those populations, see how it affects pain. So there are so many things, really, really awesome circuit level things that we can do that um, we actually need and require like smaller animal systems for, because they just be simply too invasive in humans mm-hmm. and dangerous.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. You're not only a scientist, right? But you're also a science communicator and you're doing like such cool stuff. I uh, came across your TikTok account. You're doing like really cool stuff on TikTok and you're also involved in a project called Pan Um, so I'd first off like to ask you, why do you think it's important to, um, do science communication or why do you engage in science communication? What's your motivation for that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, science communication is super important. Science is a huge part of everyone's daily lives or at least everyone's lives in general. (laughs) I personally love teaching people about science, about the brains, because I think it helps teach them about themselves. Um, I'm a scientist and I seek truth all the time and I want others to do the same. So I think science communication is super important because it not only teaches people about science and the brain and things like that, it also empowers them to do their own research and explore their own curiosities. And I think it's fun to like encourage people to seek truth too. So that's why I personally really love doing science communication and want to supplement my PhD and my future career with that as well.
0: Yeah, cool. Yeah, I always think, like especially during the pandemic, it became really apparent that maybe not the science itself is the most important thing for the general public, but scientific thinking and, um, like as you said, seeking truth and um, rethinking, being aware of biases, these kinds of things that you learn in science are super important. And I think by teaching science to a general audience, we also teach the process of accumulating new knowledge and the process of science in general so i think that's super important
1: yeah there's a lot of issues that we face where the public doesn't trust science and doesn't trust the different outlets that teach them science so i think it's super important to like teach people who and who they can't trust you know how people understand what's true and what's not so that we can battle misinformation and overall increase public trust in science.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so what exactly is Pan Panneuronome?
1: Yeah, um, that is a blog, an online blog that me and another graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania run. Um, we aim to break down the brain for people to understand. So every week we have different PhD students in our neuroscience department write different articles about things that they're interested in or new research or old research and anything about the brain that they want and we publish it um or it goes through an editing process which me and another student lead and then it's published on our blog a week later so we just have weekly content coming out and it's just uh, another way for us to you know spread the word about the brain
0: super cool how did you come up with this idea and when did you start doing this
1: yeah, I mean it's not my idea. It was something that <laughs> was a part of the program before I joined, and I was presented it when I was a first year, and I was like, "This is so cool! I want to write for them." So I started to write blog articles for the outlet, and then over time, they asked me to come on as an editor. So that's why I still come on leadership role in the in the organization.
0: Okay, so this is a uh, student organized, right?
1: Yes, it's completely student-run, but it is funded by the neuroscience department.
0: Okay, so you get supported by the university. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. I think that's uh, super cool. I uh, will link this website to this episode here. Um, as I said before, you're also having a TikTok account where you share very cool videos, also share um, like videos on the day of a PhD student and these kinds of things and yeah i'd be interested to first know how did you come up with the idea to do science communication on tiktok because yes tiktok can be super engaging but i think tiktok as a medium for complex scientific concepts is also very challenging so yeah
1: yeah um Honestly, I would say it was random. I, <laughs> I think I started off doing like a day in the life video because I saw people do it with their different fields. And I was like, I want to show people what it looks like to be a PhD student and go to, go to lab every day and <laughs> do research. And those videos ended up doing very, very well. And people started asking me more about the research I do. So then I started to do videos about them, do videos about pain, different forms of pain relief and things like that. And then end up just getting bigger and bigger, and look, <laughs> happily begin to build build an audience. And then I was like, oh wow, like caught fire. Let me keep going. <laughs> but it is, it is true that TikTok is a strange, <laughs> a strange place. <laughs> it's also like not a place for people with super high attention spans. But I think that is something of a challenge, right? Because I think for my goal for TikTok was to really condense my research and all these ideas into something that you can learn in 30 minutes, 30 seconds or 60 seconds or a minute and a half, two minutes. So though somebody may not watch the whole video, it's still, they still get a lot of views and people will watch and are are interested. And I think that if my goal is to inspire people to do their own research, I think it's cool to get people starting to think about these topics and thinking about how they apply to their labs or their lives, maybe after that they can do their own Google search and understand how they might be able to use this information.
0: What I like particularly about your uh, videos is that they are super real. So you not only show the ups, but also the downs and people really get a sense of what it means to be a PhD student and that it's not always straightforward and, oh, I'm gonna do this experiment and then this, and then I'm gonna publish paper number one of 10 (laughs) and then yeah, um, smooth sailing but you also show like difficulties being, for instance, drained of all your energy because you had to do experiments for weeks and months and maybe something didn't work out. So I think it's uh, super cool that you are very honest uh, in your approach.
1: Yeah, I think that it it's double-sided, right? I want to learn. I want people to understand the good and bad sides of PhD and academia as well, but also it starts as like an outlet for me <laughs> when I'm feeling frustrated or feeling like I need support or encouragement. I can reach out to the TikTok community and it, and, it, and it ends up working out, right? People who are also in PhD programs, I'm able to connect with them. We're able to, you know, commiserate together, work towards finding solutions. Like the other day I asked on TikTok, like, I'm having a really hard time keeping up with the literature. Like I find myself burnt out from research and I'm not able to like spend as much time as I would like really, really reading. So people offered me solutions about what I may be able to look into, like using Word to like Microsoft Word to like read aloud text for you. When I learned Mm -hmm. that, I was like, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. that really changed my life overnight. Like, so people are able to provide a lot of tips for me as well and for each other in order to b- build community and work mm-hmm. towards, you know, our degrees, which are grueling, but it's good to be able to like build these connections and build community yeah. online to, yeah. Yeah. Help each other out.
0: But that's so cool. And so important because of course, one side of your PhD is to do with uh, learning to do research, but the other side is uh, learning to organize a project, organize yourself and so on. And it's super cool that uh, the TikTok community can kind of, help with that. Uh, Maybe you can share more of those uh, reading tips because I also have a hard time keeping up with the literature as everyone, I guess. And the more interdisciplinary your project becomes, the more difficult it is, I think.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, You want me to share them right now? I'm happy to. Yeah, (laughs) please. (laughs) Yeah. Other people people mentioned, like I mentioned, so instead of reading things out loud, listening to audio versions of what you're reading so you can read things faster or maybe when you're not when you're in commute, when you're not able to really like hunker down and look at paper and things like that. Another thing I was offered was annotations style reading where you can use apps like Notability or OneNote to kind of annotate your PDFs of your papers as you move on. Another piece of advice I was given was to not take it all at once, right? It's okay to only read a little bit at a time. So somebody mentioned, how about you just say, strictly, I will spend 20, 30 minutes reading today. That was what I will do. I will do nothing else in this time. I'll put my phone away. I don't need to be in lab, things like that. Um, Finding the best environment for reading, you know, kind of setting yourself up to be successful in like your everyday reading. Another option was Google alerts, Google scholar alerts to be able to be pinged into the mes- the most recent research in your field according to certain keywords and things like that. So I got a lot of really, really good tips. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited because I can use this platform to like reach out not only when things are going well, but when things are going, when things are going you know, less than ideal.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Um, could you maybe walk us through the process of creating a TikTok video, like a 20, 30 second TikTok video?
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends on like what my goal is. Um, sometimes I'll be, if, if it's like a science communication topic I want to teach people about, It'll mostly be like I am interacting with science either through work or on the internet, and I'm like, oh, this is this one fact is like really interesting. I want to talk about this. And I'll think about it for a few days, do some research, and then write a script. And then I'll just record that script whenever I have the time, edit it, and then post on the internet. Um, If it's like a day in the life, it usually is just like, at random times of the day i'll pull out my phone and just record what i'm doing sometimes if i'm doing like different tissue culture not tissue culture but like tissue processing work or different imaging work something that doesn't directly relate images or sorry directly um include animals because i'm not allowed to record and post animals but like (laughs) which i don't think people want to see that anyway especially because i work in a pain lab (laughs) but like um i'll just pull out my phone and record as i'm doing things and then edit later and think of like a story for what i want to talk about sometimes i'll talk about what i'm doing in the videos or sometimes i'll talk about different aspects of the, diff- the phd process in a voiceover while showing me doing lab work and things like that
0: mm-hmm. how long does it usually take you then to, to create one video
1: honestly if i'm like just filming at random parts of the day at the end of the day i probably give it like an hour an hour and a half to edit and um record the voiceover and post It's not too bad. It's really not too bad. It's it's very doable, but like it's at the expense of you know Mm -hmm. other hobbies or (laughs) activities I might be. They're going that like in the evenings or something like that. But it's okay. It's pretty fun. I really like it.
0: Um, do you maybe have a piece of advice for PhD candidates that maybe dally with the idea of getting into science communication?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say if you really share this passion for communication i'd say just go for it um if you're worried about what it's going to look like or sound like in the beginning definitely reach out to your peers or people in your community for feedback about what you do but i would say just shoot your shot and go for it if you know that there's a outlet that you want to write for apply if you just simply want to make a video walk to you don't have to have a ring light or fancy technology or a fancy mic walk up to your window where there's good lighting hold your phone in front of your face and just speak right because people one is like it's easier for people to commute like sometimes to engage with science when it's being spoken at them and not an article that they're reading so that already gives you an advantage if you're excited about it that will show in your video and i'll just say just go for it and use the resources that are around you to kind of hone your craft but definitely if this is your passion i say do it and see what happens it it really might end up going a lot better than you think
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: my goal was not to be like tiktok famous or even really like to have that many followers i was just literally posting randomly so it ended up working out a lot and it's helped my career a bunch since then
0: yeah cool Yeah, it was a bit similar for me because I've been thinking about um, being a host on a podcast for a very long time, like a science podcast especially, and I was always like, okay, in two years I'm going to start this, or in one and a half years I'm going to start brainstorming ideas and try to find people or whatever. And then at some point I came across this um, podcast and I was like, just just send them a mail and see where it's going and then things uh, turn out to happen much faster than expected yeah
1: (laughs) yeah it's like there's there's power Mm -hmm. making that first step and you never know what what opportunities will come and you're a great podcast host so i'm very happy that you decided to to pursue this
0: yeah thank you very much Mm, what are future science communication projects that we can expect from you Maybe a neuroscience song. I I heard you singing (laughs) as well.
1: Yeah, so I also sang something I failed to mention this whole time. Was I was a music major as well in undergrad. Oh wow. And I'm like very musical, like there's guitars in the background of the video, right? Like I Mm -hmm. play guitar, play piano, I sing, and I write music. So I do like wanna incorporate music into science, but (laughs) that's the thing that I'm currently like scared of starting, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I definitely need to make that step. I want to like kind of communicate science through song and see if like that could be fun and entertaining. Um, I'm also interested in going to other forms of science communication. Like I think that for a career, I would love to be consulting on different science documentaries, different things about neuroscience. Like for example, I watch like Netflix explain videos where they talk Mm -hmm. about the brain and they talk about all these different things and it's like not as short form as TikTok, mm-hmm. but it's not as like long as a documentary. I think that that would be super fun, like a fifteen minute little mini TV series about you know different topics in the brain. I would love to be involved or create something like that or produce something like that, whether it's targeted for you know adults or children. So I think that that could be really fun to get into in the future. Um, I'm currently, you know, building up my science communication skills and my networking, and mm-hmm. trying to see if there's these projects already happening or how people actually make these things happen, so I can kind of pursue them in the future. But I do have big dreams, and I hope that TikTok can help me get there.
0: Yeah, that sounds super exciting, and I think, yeah, we can all look forward to what you're doing in the future. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, that's already it. Um, this was like. Loads of fun. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really looking forward to your future Psycom work. And maybe for people to find you fastest. So what's the best way to stay up to date with your work? Um, can you maybe share your TikTok handle and your website?
1: Yeah, so I um, do not have a personal website yet that is in the works. But my TikTok handle is at neuro underscore melody. That's my same handle on Instagram if you don't have TikTok um, and on Twitter, but I post less videos on there on Twitter. Um, You can also look at some of my blog articles on penneurono.com. You can just like look up my name there for work I've written or other articles that other amazing articles that have been written by my peers at my program. But yeah, that's where you can find me.
0: Great. Yeah. Dan, thank you so much. I wish you all the luck with your research and your science communication work. And it was great to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk. And it's also lear- fun to learn a little bit more about the European PhD experience as well, which I don't, now that I realize it, don't have that much exposure to. <laughs> so that's been really nice. Thank you. Thanks.
0: This was my interview with neuroscientist and science communicator Lindsay Egel. If you enjoyed this, check out Ninze's work under Neuro underscore Melody on TikTok, Instagram and Twitter. If you like our podcast, please make sure to follow us on social media as well. Everything's linked in the episode description. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Bye bye. Offspring Magazine, the podcast, is brought to you by the Max Planck PhDNet and the Science Communication Working Group known as the Offspring Magazine. The intro-outro music is composed by Srinath Rancumar, and the pre-intro jingle is composed by Gustavo Carizzo. For any feedback, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to write us at at offspring.podcasts.phdnet.mpg.de. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy, bye-bye.